Father, we thank you for this wonderful day that you have provided beautiful, beautiful weather. Even in our bibliology section, we were reminded that the heavens declare the glory of God. Lord, your, your eternal power is on display by the way you change the seasons. And so the Christmas of, Christmas of this morning, Lord, we're grateful to be alive, to have air in our lungs, but most importantly, Lord, to gather filled with hope and able to rejoice in that hope, as Romans 12 tells us, because of what Christ has done. We've spent the last few weeks reveling in his person and his work, sufficient as it is. Lord, we're grateful. Uh, Lord, now we even get to be immersed in this wondrous doctrine of how you would save and apply this redeeming, redemptive work of your Son. Lord, we ask for understanding. We pray that you, by your grace and through your Spirit, would illuminate our minds and clear up any confusion that rests on this particular subject. And Lord, there is much confusion as well as hostility and division along these lines. But Lord, we know as a people, your people, that doctrine matters. And so we want to chain our lives to this book that you have given us, this treasure. Lord, we ask that you would help us as we seek to study it, that we may guard it, protect it, steward it with integrity and zeal. Lord, we ask for your favor now, for your glory, that we may be better equipped and fit for your purposes. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, welcome to Equip Ministry. Just to remind you, this is, uh, that's what this hour is. It's to equip us to make us better worshipers, okay? To equip us to treasure this gospel message with integrity and zeal, to equip us to contend earnestly for the faith, right? The book of Jude. Now, you're going to need some notes this morning, so does everyone have a copy of the, the paper outline in the back? And can everyone hear me over the whistle? Perfect. All right. Does everyone remember the crux of Epaphras' prayer last week in Colossians chapter 4? You remember what he prayed? Anyone? Yes, absolutely. This bond slave of Jesus Christ, right? This individual was, as our pastor pointed out, he was consistently and fervently and selflessly laboring, fighting for his church family. Why? So that they would stand perfect and fully assured of the will of God. He was praying for spiritual maturity, but it was spiritual maturity that was to be attached to doctrinal certainty, right? And those two always have to be interrelated. Spiritual maturity, doctrinal certainty. And why, is, why are those two connected? It's because that's always the case, right? If we are to be a fruitful and faithful people of God, it's imperative that we undertake a regular, systematic, thorough study of the doctrines of God's Word. That's fundamentals of the faith, okay? We've spent... It's going to be a long Sunday if that doesn't advance. It did. Just a bit of delay. All right. We've spent the last few weeks looking at these doctrines, right? We've covered bibliology. You, you were patient. We spent five weeks on the subject of the nature and origin and character of the Bible. Why? Because all of these other doctrines begin to fade and fall apart if we are not assured that this is God's Word and what all of that means, its implications. We traversed, I believe, 
Brandon covered theology proper, the attributes and character of God. You had Chris look at the person of Jesus Christ. You had Drew the last couple of weeks then look at the work of Jesus Christ. And now we get to dive into the next 36 weeks, congratulations, on the subject of salvation. Okay, I'm kidding, of course. We have two weeks to cover this. We're going to unpack it, but most assuredly not exhaust the area of soteriology, the miracle of salvation. And our objectives will be clear, just twofold. Wow. Brandon, I may just have you stand up there and press the arrow button. Great. Two objectives. It's in your outline. One is to explain that a person's salvation is a sovereign work of God. And secondly, to understand conversion and its evidences. That's it. And we're going to simplify this. We want to explain that a person's salvation is a sovereign work of God. And secondly, to understand conversion and its evidences. And within this discussion, we're going to make sure that we have a buttoned up view of the depravity of man as well as the sovereignty of God in salvation. Now, what will be helpful in the middle is the suitcase that resides between the two. What is man's responsibility in salvation? After all, there are two persistent questions that continually be, continue to be mulled over by those around the community of faith known as the church. And that is one, if God is sovereign in salvation, then why is man responsible? It's a fair question. Secondly, man is pondering, how do I know that I'm a Christian? This will speak to all of this. Next slide says that our outline will be this. We're going to cover man's condition of depravity, his start and sinful state. We'll traverse then to the grand subject of the sovereignty of God in salvation. We'll, we'll tiptoe in those waters this Sunday pick it up next Sunday, and then we'll move on to man's responsibility, okay? Your memory verse this Sunday, Ephesians 2, the next slide, verse 8 through 10. Let's read this together, Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. That is the memory verse of the next two weeks. For by grace you have been saved through what, church? Faith. We have a God who redeems people. Are you thankful? To which we then ask, well, how does Christ's redeeming work get applied to us? How does that redemption happen? How do we know if someone is a Christian? Well, thankfully, praise be to God. God has decreed or ordained a plan of salvation of which he has clearly and thoroughly revealed in his word, the Bible. And in this lesson, we're going to learn how he saves those who believe. And the first pillar or tenet that I want us to chain ourselves to is this. Salvation is monergistic and not synergistic. Salvation is monergistic and not synergistic. Now, let me hear from you. What do we convey when we say monergistic? Think about the makeup of the word. 
Mono one, perfect, okay. Anything to add to that? Single source. That's exactly right. The salvation of a sinner, the salvation of you is a, this is important, please note this, it is a singular act of one and not the cooperative act of two. It is monergistic. It is the singular act of one and not the cooperative act of two. And you go back to the 1600s, 1610, 1611, 1618, and 1619. This was what was being fought over and defended with precision. God is solely, solely, solely responsible for salvation. You have a great quote in your Fundamentals of the Faith book. John MacArthur writes the following, and it's, it's helpful just because I appreciate the way it was worded. He says, John Eddy, the 19th century Scottish preacher, said, Man without Christ are death walking. The beauties of holiness do not attract man in his moral insensibilities, nor do the miseries of hell deter him. You can talk about heaven to him, he's not interested. You can talk about hell to him, but he's not afraid. Now, this kind of man doesn't need renewal. This kind of man doesn't need repair. This kind of man doesn't need restoration or resuscitation. This kind of man needs what? Resurrection. He needs life because he's dead. Now, let's look at how the Bible has conveyed that profound truth. Let's look at God's indictment of man, okay? Unpacking first the sinful start of man. You see, God has appointed two representatives in history. Two representatives, Adam and Jesus Christ. You even look to Romans chapter 5, you, you see this woeful, sinful start of man made in God's image. Romans 5.12 Therefore, just as through one man, that's Adam... Sin entered into the world, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all sinned. Death entered into the world through sin, through one man. We'll pick up on this quality of deadness in a moment. And what we note right out the gate in Genesis 3, because that's what Romans 5 is connected to, got to love the coherent beauty of God's Word, is that Adam did not represent the human race very well, well, did he? He did not represent the human race well in that he violated the one law which God had granted to him, which was to not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Friends, this is what is known in the Bible as federal headship, okay? Because Adam was the God-appointed representative for all of humanity... Adam brought the entire human race into sin, misery, and death due to his disobedience. The beauty of Romans 5 is what? There's not just one representative, is there? You have the Lord Jesus Christ himself. On the other hand, in a contrary fashion to Adam, through his perfect, perfect obedience to the Father, he earned eternal life and blessedness for all his people. Are you grateful for Christ this morning? Hopefully that gratitude grows as we move forward. 
The rest of the Bible conveys this theological principle. It vouches for this horrific start. Look at Psalm 51.5. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. Psalm 58.3. The wicked are estranged from the womb. These who speak lies go astray from when? From birth. Romans 5.19, for as through the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. It was a woeful, horrendous start for the human race. And henceforth from Genesis chapter 3, now there is this sinful, woeful, horrific state that all of us are even born into. We have to note several things about this depravity, or depravity meaning corruption. It, it is complete. It's full. I think the first thing to note is, number one, is that we're all sinners by nature. We're all sinners by nature. One of the things you're going to note this morning is, you can sit and type and think of a lot of things to say, but it's best just to just let God's Word speak for itself. So we have a lot of references. Isaiah 48, 8. You have been called a rebel from birth. Second Chronicles 6, 36. For there is no man who does not sin. Ecclesiastes 7, verse 20. Indeed, there is not a righteous man on earth who continually does good and who never sins. You have Isaiah 53, that wondrous uh, chapter, the suffering servant. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. Psalm 130, verse 3. If you, Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? Church, the implication there is who? No one, as many of you just uttered. Isaiah 64, 6, for all of us have become like one who is unclean. And all our righteous deeds are like a filthy garment. Very important book to the book of Isaiah, which his theme is salvation. All of our righteous deeds are like a filthy garment and all of us wither like a leaf and our iniquities like the wind take us away. You have probably that section, Romans 3, which is probably the ones our minds go to the most with total depravity. There is none righteous, not even, how many? One. So we are sinners by nature. Secondly, we are spiritually dead. And there's, time does not allow, let's just allow God's word to say a few things about this deadness. Romans 5.12, death spread to all men because all sinned. Then you have those companion letters, Ephesians and Colossians, really echoing the same things, right? Chapter 2, which of which our memory verse sits right in the middle of. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. You were dead. Colossians 2, that we... Finish this book this Sunday. When you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh. The Bible is very, very clear. Despite what Jacobus Arminius espoused, right, in the 1600s, we are without any element of life and therefore ability 
to move towards God. Drew did a great job. I think he was even last Sunday or the one prior, right? That who, who can raise dead people? It's not the dead person himself. It requires someone else, which we'll pick up on in a moment. Third, we are all sinners by nature. We're all spiritually dead, but we also have all darkened hearts and corrupt minds. Ephesians 4.18. This picture's getting very dark, isn't it? That's good for us, though. Being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart. Genesis 6, 6, 5, Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart were only evil continually. And you know what happens right after this in Genesis 6, right? This thing called rain begins to fall. Genesis 8, verse 21, for the intent of man's heart is evil from his youth. It's helpful for parenting, right? John chapter 3, verse 19. This is the judgment that the light has come into the world and men do what men do. They love the darkness rather than the light for their deeds were evil. You have Romans 8, 7, because the mind set on the flesh is hostile toward God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God. And make note of this important phrase, for it is not even able, what church? Able, what church? Able to do so. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Last, 2 Corinthians 2.14. But a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, For they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. Our minds are corrupt and darkened, but by the grace of God. We're all sinners by nature. We're spiritually dead. We have darkened hearts, corrupt minds. The picture continues to get more and more bleak. Number four, we are slaves to sin. We are slaves to sin. John 8, 34. Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is the slave of sin. We need a lot of help is what this is conveying at this point. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 25. With gentleness, correcting those who are in opposition, if perhaps God may grant them repentance leading to the knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil. This is the important phrase. What is our condition apart from the grace of God? Having been held, what church? Captive by him to do his will. We are enslaved. We are dead. Our minds are darkened. Everyone picking up on the total, complete inability of man. Salvation is monergistic. Not a cooperative act of two. Romans 6.20, for we were, when we were slaves of sin, you were free in regards to righteousness. Fifth, we are enemies of God and objects of his wrath. Romans 5, verse 10, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. In Ephesians 2.3, among them we too. All formerly lived in the lust of the flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, 
and were by nature children of what church? Wrath, even as the rest. We are enemies. We're all sinners by nature. We're spiritually dead. We have darkened hearts, corrupt minds. We're slaves to sin. We're enemies of God, objects of His wrath. And sixth and finally, very important, why is salvation monergistic and not synergistic? Why is it the singular act of one and not the cooperative act of two? Is that we are unwilling and what? Unable to change. There's two passages in the Old Testament that are go-tos here. I love these because I love the way that they're conveyed. Job 14, verse 4. Who can make the clean out of the unclean? Pastoral pause, mic drop, there's only one. Jeremiah 13, 23. Can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard his spots? Question. Then you also can do, do good. Then you also can do good who are... Oh, hang on. Can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard his spots? Then you also can do good who are accustomed to doing evil. Do you love the way that's put there? A leopard cannot change his spots. The Ethiopian cannot change his skin. This total inability, even known and projected and conveyed thoroughly and clearly in the Old Testament. In Matthew 7, 18, Jesus picks up on this. A good tree cannot produce bad fruit, nor can a bad tree produce good fruit. Isaiah 64, verse 7. There is no one who calls on your name who arouses himself to take hold of you. No one. Because he's unable to arouse himself and take hold of, hold of God. John six sixty five. No one can come to me. Very powerful verse. Let's read this together out loud. No one can come to me unless it has been granted him from the Father. And all of God's people said, Lord, thank you. Yeah. Thank you for granting this to us. Romans 8, verse 7. The mind is set on the flesh, is hostile toward God. We've read this earlier. For it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. We are sinners by nature. We're spiritually dead. We have darkened hearts, corrupt minds, we're enslaved to sin, we're enemies of God, and we're unable and unwilling to change. Yuck, right? James Montgomery Boyce puts this in a wonderfully profound, simplistic way. It's worth reading. Next slide. According to the Bible... To be a sinner is not merely to be morally imperfect or to be unable to achieve one's full potential without God. Something that Jacob Arminius was conveying the opposite of. No, it is rather a description of human beings in an utterly ruined state. R.C. Sproul calls it radical corruption, a state from which we are unable to deliver ourselves and in which we might have all been left to perish, and justly so. We are unable to deliver ourselves. Friends, this is where you and I begin to see where the sovereignty of God 
comes into play in salvation, yes? Because of the depravity of man, because of our depravity, man could never and would never find God. We're all Lazarus in the tomb. And we're all Lazarus in a tomb so that what you need and what I need is who? We need God. Your friends need God. Your co-workers need God. Your neighbors need God. God must seek us out. Salvation is totally a work of God. It's monergistic. What should that produce in you this morning? Two things. One that should produce produce thanksgiving if you are saved. Secondly, it should produce a cry and plea for help if you are not. God, please save me. Why is this so doctrinally important? Why could we, rightfully so, spend 36 weeks on this? As we consider the doctrine of salvation, surely the thing that should impress us is the fact that this doctrine begins with something that must be fundamental in the matter of salvation, and that is a correct assessment of the condition of the one who is to be saved. We have to clearly assess our condition, because if you and I have deficient, and if you and I have light views about sin, what happens? Well, then you and I are liable to have defective views regarding the means necessary for the salvation that we need, the salvation of the sinner. If we believe that the fall of man in the Garden of Eden was simply and merely partial, then we shall most likely be satisfied with the salvation that is attributable partly to us as well as to God. Like Arminius, we begin to revel that man and God, in cooperation with each other by God's grace, are responsible for salvation. You have to appreciate the common sense that J.C. Ryle perpetually conveyed in his writings. One such example was this. There are very few errors and false doctrines, he says, of which the beginning may not be traced up to may not be traced up to unsound views about the corruption of human nature. Wrong views of a disease will always bring with them wrong views of a remedy. Wrong views of the corruption of human nature will always carry with them wrong views of the grand antidote and cure for that corruption. Very few errors and false doctrines of which the beginning may not be traced to an unsound view of the nature of man. The reformers before us, these theologians, these individuals who got God's people back to God's word, they understood this. And not because they were very clever individuals who got together and put together this philosophy and idea and package of thought is because they simply looked at the whole of Scripture from start to finish. And they read passages like Romans chapter 5, right? No one is able 
And in reading God's word, they pronounce that man's natural state is a state of total depravity. And therefore, there was a total inability on the part of man to gain or contribute to his salvation. Now, when the Reformed theologians speak of total depravity, they do not mean that every man is as evil as he could be, do they? Nor that man is unable to recognize the will of God, right? God's, we have this thing called a conscience, Romans 2.14. It's written inside of all of us. Nor were they saying that man is unable to do any measure of, of goodwill towards other human beings. What they do mean is that when man fell in the Garden of Eden, he fell in his totality. The whole of his personality was affected by the fall and by sin. And that sin extends to the whole of his faculties, the will, the understanding, the, the affections, and everything else in between. Everything had been touched by corruption and sin. Hopefully, over the last few slides, we, we believe here at North Lake Bible Church that this is irrefutably taught by the Word of God to which we recently just referred to. Those scriptures that we blitz through are merely a selection of the scriptures that confirm the teaching of this total depravity. Now, we can't stop there because there's this thing called salvation and new life, regeneration. So we move to onward and we have to see, okay, well then how does in this state, unable, incapable, not moving towards God, desireth not to move towards God, corrupt in every fashion, how is Christ's redemptive work applied to man? We'll look at God's sovereignty and salvation. First is God's sovereign choice. I want you to pause there for a moment. One of the things I'm appreciating about this church plan is the Lord is so faithful and showing off his power week after week and he's bringing people from all over the place and he's knitting our hearts together in love. It's a beautiful thing to watch and observe. And part of that grandeur and beauty is that he begins to take people from all sorts of contexts and church backgrounds. And I never went to church and I grew up in the Catholic church. I grew up in a Lutheran church and uh, I walked away from the Lord. I went to a charismatic, sinker-sensitive church and we're all coming together and the Lord has a way of taking a very eclectic group of individuals and directing our eyes to the Lord Jesus Christ himself and begins to do a wondrous thing in a local church. And we pray that for Northlake laboring earnestly in our prayers that we would stand perfect, fully assured of the will of God. Part of that is that we begin to grow and be entrenched in a like-mindedness of what these doctrines of God's... That's why we're doing fundamentals of the faith. They are fundamental things. And for us to know them and treasure them, you know what it does? It fuels us. We're going to start the service in a moment. How rich a treasure we possess is Jesus Christ our Lord. How do God's people sing that with any measure of zeal and fervency? It's because you get these doctrines. You know them. And that fuels you to be wonderful worshipers unto Him. Faithful worshipers unto Him. 
And when we begin to have this like-mindedness, here's also what begins to to happen. Certain words that we used to bristle at, and we're still surrounded by people who bristle at these words, like God's sovereign choice in salvation. People break out into hives. Let's not break out into hives. Let's put a salve on the hives for a moment, let them dissipate, and how God's words speak to us. You see, the doctrine of unconditional election naturally follows the doctrine of total depravity. If man is indeed dead, held captive, blind, then the remedy for all these conditions must lie outside of himself. And that is with God. Drew asked in our last section, can the dead raise themselves? And the answer must inevitably have be, of course not. Now, follow this logic for a moment because we teach our children to think deeply and critically. If the dead cannot raise themselves, and if this is the case, and we look at some men and women are raised out of their spiritual death, they're born again as John's gospel conveys, And since they're unable to perform this work of salvation themselves, then we have to conclude that it was who who raised them. Who raised them if they can't raise themselves? Salvation is monergistic, not synergistic. God raised them. Now, follow the logic, the theological logic. On the other hand, As many men and women are not made alive, and that is the case, you are surrounded by them every day. If man is unable to save himself on account of the fallen Adam being a total fall, well then we must likewise conclude, if certain men and women have not been made alive, that is because God has not raised them. If God alone can save And if not all men are saved, then the conclusion of the matter must be that God has not chosen to save all. We don't bristle at that. We don't break out into hives. This is not a blind philosophy. This is drawn from, built upon, and supported and revealed in God's Word. Let's look at God's sovereign choice in salvation. First, God chose those who would be saved. This is all over your Bibles. This does not promote arrogance in us, but humility. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Here it is. Just as He, what church, chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before Him. Same chapter, Ephesians 1, verse 5. He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself. 1 Thessalonians, chapter 1, verse 4. Knowing, brethren, beloved by God, his choice of you. John 13, verse 18. I do not speak of all of you. I know the ones I have, what, chosen. Keep going. 
We're only picking a sample. Matthew twenty-two fourteen. For many are called, but few are chosen. Acts thirteen forty-eight. When the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. There are certain men and women who are appointed to eternal life with no doing and responsibility on their own. Second Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13. But we should always give thanks to God for you, brethren beloved by the Lord, because God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and faith in the truth. 1 Peter 1, verse 1. To those who reside as aliens scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who are chosen. And last, again, but not exhausted, Psalm 65, 4. How blessed is the one whom you choose and bring near to you to dwell in your courts. You're going to have people in your life that bristle over the notion of choice. What did the last two minutes convey to you? Don't simply de- debate with your own words. Let's bring back people to God's word, right? It's all over the Bible from start to finish. God chose those who he would save. But secondly, the other side of this coin is that God obviously doesn't treat everyone equally. The story of the Bible is the story of unconditional election, is it not? It's strange that you have individuals who oppose themselves to this doctrine. They they fail to recognize this in God's Word. Some individuals, believers, have difficulty in believing that God could pass by some and choose others, and yet they have no apparent difficulty in believing that God called Abraham out of the Ur of the Chaldeans, these heathenistic people, and left others to their heathenism. Now, how do you proclaim and confess and believe in one and not the other? Why should God choose the nation of Israel as his peculiar people, as he said? It wasn't because of themselves, was it? Why would God choose the nation of Israel? There's no need to speculate. You look at Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 6, gives us the answer. The Lord says, you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God, got to love the emphasis, the Lord your God, let it not be forgotten, has chosen you to be a people for his own possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. The Lord did not set his love upon you nor choose you because you were more in number than any people, for you were in the fewest of all people. He chose you because the Lord loved you. Beautiful passage, John fifteen sixteen. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed that you would go and bear fruit. Friends, why should God, completely disregarding the familiar laws of Israel in that day, choose the younger son of Jacob over the eldest brother Esau? You can just look to the law and to the testimonies, right? You look at Romans chapter 5. Not five, chapter nine. You've got this section of God's sovereignty. How do I, dare I mess that up? Mess that up. Romans nine eleven. 
that the purpose of God according to election might stand. And he goes on to say, the simple phrase, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. Right? He does not treat all people equally. Should you even have Romans 15.9, says that the Lord even chose, right, long beforehand to have his son Jesus Christ become a servant to the circumcision. That's us, to Gentiles. Or to, to Jews as well. Why? So that the Gentiles would glorify God for his mercy. Acts 9, 15. But the Lord said to him, go, for he has chosen, he's a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and sons of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. He does not treat everyone equally. Romans 9, 15, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. Romans 9 through 11, great section on this, this subject. Later, verse 9, 20, chapter 9, 21, or does not the potter have a right over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for common use. It goes on to say well, the, the pot has no grounds to look up at its maker, the potter, and say, what have you done and why have you done it? The potter does as he pleases, and the pot does not question his actions. Ephesians 1.45, chosen in Christ from the foundation of the world, predestined unto the adoption of ch- as children. God's choice in salvation. God chose those that he would save, and he does not treat everyone equally. Now, we're going to pick up on this more later, next Sunday. I encourage you to come back. In terms of living what we learn, let me just give two things. One, our hearts, suffice it to say and convey it already, our hearts should be teeming with gratitude and praise to God. If you are in Christ this morning, if you are fully assured in the will of God, just stop for a moment. There is no credit of your own doing that's responsible for that. That's why there's there's really nothing like on this planet than when God's people gather together and sing, how rich a treasure we possess is Jesus Christ our Lord. It's like nothing else on this planet. Why? Because we understand this. We're overflowing with gratitude. And secondly, our lives should be holy and blameless before Him. We are humble, broken people. We want the whole and totality of our lives to honor this One who has lavished us with undeserved grace. Next Sunday, we're going to continue this by not only looking at God's sovereign choice and salvation, but we're going to take a fascinating stroll through church history a little bit. I'm a big fan of. We're going to look at God's plan for salvation as well as God's sovereign purpose in salvation, and then we'll close with man's responsibility, the responsibility of the lost and the responsibility of the believer. Give you a little snapshot before we leave, okay? This Sunday, October 10, 2021, is not the first time these doctrines have been conveyed, right? You had the early church fathers, men who chained themselves to this book. They espouse this doctrine. 
You move forward. You have individuals, the reformers, right, in the 1500s who were bringing individuals back to God's word. And in the year 1564, John Calvin passed away, okay? Well, four years prior to his passing, you had a man by the name of Jacobus Arminius who was born. He was born in 1560. He died in 1610. Fascinating snapshot for Arminius' life. Arminius actually grew up loving the doctrines of grace. He actually studied under John Calvin's successor, theologian by the name of Beza, right? And he was tasked to go and refute and oppose this individual who was actually denouncing and opposing the doctrines of grace, that God is sovereign in salvation. But something awful and tragic happened in that process. Arminius was led astray. He was lured to the other side. He spent the rest of his theological life and career actually opposing the doctrines of grace. He was named the head of a school in, in Leiden. And this school, this thought against the doctrines of grace was being perpetuated in, in the country of Netherlands. And a lot of geopolitical things were going on. They had just won their independence from Spain. There was a lot of identity crisis going on in the Netherlands, especially not on the spiritual front, but on an earthly front. Arminius passed away in 1610, and in 1611, you had the followers of Arminius put together this paper, and they had five tenets of which were kind of denials of the doctrines of grace. Five tenets. Well, this began to permeate in the church and grow, head, you know, develop headwinds and steam, lead people astray, so that at that point, the church had to gather. You had the Senate of Dort. There's been a lot of church meetings in church history very few were as important as the Synod of Dort, right? They started in November of 1618. They started, they ended in May of 1619. And what they did was go back to the Word of God to defend Arminius's position. Not defend it, to, but to rather to oppose it and reject it. And they said, what does the Bible say? And what they came up with were five responses, five affirmations and denials in opposition to Jacob Arminius's position. Well, in classic Dutch fashion, right, a common flower in that time was a tulip. So we have the tulip today. It was not be used until the early 1900s. This moniker we know as the tulip, right? Total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace. We'll delve into this next Sunday. And perseverance or preservation of the saints. Those five tenets, Calvin did not put together those tenets. The reformers didn't put together those tenets. Those were put together in response to Jacob Arminius's position. Again, we'll talk about what those oppositions were, free will and human ability and so forth. What they came to in 1619 was a, a proclamation that God is sovereign in salvation. How did they come to that conclusion? Because they looked in every turn from page one to the last page of the Bible. It was screaming to them that man is unable and salvation is monergistic. The singular act of one and not the cooperative act of two. Now, you've heard over the span of human uh, redemptive history, right? What does doctrine of unconditional election mean? God looked down the quarters of time and he foresaw those who would believe. Arminius believed that. And we'll unpack that and dismantle it and be correct in our thinking next Sunday. That's not the case of unconditional election. Oh, a lot else to say. Okay, let's pray. Let's get ready to sing and worship the Lord.
Lord, this is not the first time this has been fought over and defended. We want to be assured in our minds of doctrine that's been pronounced in your word. We are, do not want to be a church that just stands on doctrine of our own making. We want to stand on these tenets and pillars that are screaming to us from cover to cover. Lord, and if there be any notion and room where we bristle against this and we have issue with this, against this, Lord, it's, it's only because we, again, as James Montgomery Boy says, we have an unsound view of human nature. Our default position is to instinctually and naturally take credit in part for this act. Surely I have to come towards God. Surely I have to cooperate. Lord, this is arrogance that we ask that you would banish in your people. We pray that you would settle us with this notion that you have chosen certain individuals to be saved. And this does not put you in a negative light of which we will see next Sunday. This is to mark out also equally your wrath up against your grace. We would not know such mercy if there wasn't the prospect of judgment and wrath. Lord, I ask that you would humble us and you would fuel us to worship you now as you rightfully deserve. As we glory in these doctrines, we take no pride in these doctrines. All glory be to you, Lord, one of the tenets of the Reformation, sola dea gloria. They couldn't help but say glory be to God and God alone. We want that to be the tenor and shape of the rest of this morning, and we ask that you would accomplish this for your glory. And we pray this in Jesus, not Jesus, in the name of Jesus Christ, amen.